Welcome to the Nach Daily, a Congregation Ahavas Torah initiative. Today, we are discussing the fourth parak of Sefer Yehoshua, where we find the Jewish people still in the process of crossing the Jordan. The Kohanim carrying the Ark, carrying the Aron, are on the eastern bank of the river. Recall they took a, a step into the river, which caused it to split, then the entire nation crossed over to the western bank. So we find them still there. Then Yehoshua, on the western bank with the rest of the Jewish people, commands 12 men to go back to the Kohanim and to take stones that are underneath the feet of these Kohanim carrying the ark to bring them to the western bank and to create a monument. Yehoshua also, seemingly of his own accord, at least on a pshat level, tells the men to bring 12 stones from the dry lands, from, from, from the western bank, and to bring it into the dry riverbed where the water will eventually flow again and create a second monument. So there are two monuments that are created, at which point the Kohanim cross over to the western bank with the rest of the Jewish people, and the river returns to its usual flow, back to its uh, normal, natural state. Everything that I've said so far accords with the pshat. The parak is a little bit of a complicated one to parse in terms of who is standing where, but what I've presented is a pretty clear shot approach to the parak. However, there is a medrash that is cited by Rashi, which gives us a little bit of a different chronology, which I want to highlight here. The medrash tells us that after the Jewish people create their two monuments, the Kohanim don't cross over to the west bank of the Jordan. They take a step back to where they were initially on the eastern bank, at which point the river reverts to its natural flow, and the Ark and the Kohanim bearing the Ark are now cut off from the rest of the people. The Medrash tells us what happens next. Nasa Aron es nosav v'avar. The Aron, the Ark, carries the Kohanim, who were carrying it, across the river. They fly over the river in front of all of the Jewish people, a tremendous miracle occurring, bifne'am uh, ve'eda, in front of everyone. And Rashi cites this, uh, this medrash without any qualifications, al-derech hadrash, nothing like that. He doesn't tell us that this is homiletical. Rashi presents this to us uh, as the, the, the correct uh, recounting of what took place. Radak, on the other hand, Rav David Kimchi, takes issue with this medrash. He says that there's no textual reason why we should say this. It's not necessary. And then, out of deference to Chazal, he concludes by saying, look, you know, they, they knew more than me, so there must be wisdom in this. But the Radak is, is, is not happy with this medrash and, and does not understand how it fits with the pshat at all. And I, I highlight this debate between Rashi and Radak uh, for a few reasons. Firstly, it's a great example of two Mepharsh and two exegetes operating with very different assumptions about the text. Rashi, living in northern France, uh, we know loved Medrash, and he takes on in his commentary a Midrashic worldview, and, and that's a default assumption that Tanakh is replete with miracles. The world of Tanakh is not fundamentally like our world. It's a world where there's all sorts of wonderful, uh, miraculous events taking place, and sometimes tremendous miracles will occur and the text will hardly even mention them. Radak, on the other hand, has a more complicated relationship with Medrash. It's a little bit beyond the scope of our discussion today, but he lives in southern France, which is uh, 
very much caught as a, at a crossroads between Spain and, and northern French ways of thinking about the Torah, but his family comes from Spain. They're exiles from Spain, and he really belongs, I'll say, more fundamentally in the rational philosophical realm uh, and, and, and has that approach to the Torah. And he sees the Torah as pretty much like our, the world of the Torah, of the world of Tanakh, is like our world. Of course there are miracles, but when miracles occur, the Torah tells us that they occur because it's a very big deal. Big miracles are not going to occur and the Torah just makes some sort of very thinly veiled or, or, or greatly veiled reference to it. It's, it's a big deal. It's a big departure from reality, um, a big departure from normal reality, and so the Torah needs to make a big deal about it. So Radak says, look, there's no need to insert a miracle into this text. There's no need to say that a miracle took place, and so Radak says, uh, I therefore don't, don't fully accept uh, this as a, uh, as a compelling explanation for the, uh, for the events that unfolded at the Yardin. I would like to add a different way of reading this medrash, neither accepting or rejecting it. To quote Rabbi Menachem Liebtag, Midrashim are not meant to be taken literally, they are meant to be taken seriously. Or perhaps we could say Midrashim are not always meant to be taken literally. They are meant to be taken seriously. The rabbis here are not engaging in flights of fancy to make Tanakh more interesting. They're not making things up whole cloth. They're telling us something serious and important and insightful. And we can accept the Medrash on its own terms without saying that the Medrash is telling us that these exact events took place. And I'll use this example as a kind of case in point. Well, I don't think the Medrash meant to uh, make a shot claim that the Ark really carried the Kohanim over the Yardin. I do think they were making a very sharp point on a shot level. Because the Medrash calls our attention to the central question in this Perek, one that has relevance to much of Tanakh, but I think it's a central question in this Perek, and that is, who is carrying whom? Who is carrying whom? There are two points in this parak when Yehoshua explains that one day your children will ask about this monument. What does it mean? What does it signify? What is its importance to you? And you will tell them X, Y, and Z. You're going to give them a, a particular message. And if you look at the two places and the two messages that we are to deliver to our children about these monuments, you'll see that they are in sharp contrast. The first time Yehoshua brings this up, in verses 6 and 7, he says that you're going to respond to your children saying that uh, It's because Hashem divided the waters of the Jordan in front of or because of the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem. When it crossed the Jordan. Here, the Jordan splits because of the Ark of the Covenant, which is, of course, symbolic of Hashem. Hashem here is the focal point. Then later on, at the very end of the Perek, again, we have Asher Yishalun B'nei Your children are going to ask you tomorrow, you know, in the future, what are these stones signifying? What is their significance? Vehodatem, and you will tell your children... That, that the Jewish people crossed on dry land 
through this Jordan. You're going to tell them about this miracle. But the focus here is Avar Yisrael. It's focused on the Jewish people. Asher hovish Hashem Elokeichem esmei hayarden mipneichem ad avrechem. Hashem dried out the Jordan mipneichem. Not mipnei Aaron, but mipneichem because, because of or in front of you until you finished crossing. The focus here is on the Jewish people, the water split for them. So there's a contradiction here between the two explanations for this monument. And of course, it's a subtle difference because the Jewish people ultimately represent Hashem, and no one can doubt that Hashem is the one who really caused the river to split. But there nonetheless is a tension here. How do we tell the dancer from the dance? Where did the Jewish people stop and Hashem start? Who's really in the driver's seat? In short, who is carrying whom? I think the Medrash is brilliantly bringing us into this discussion, but we only get there if we take the Medrash seriously and recognize that sometimes Medrash offers a pshat insight even when the Medrash itself isn't the pshat. I leave you with the following questions to consider, given what we've just established. How might this duality, the river splitting for the Jewish people versus splitting for the Ark, relate to the existence of two monuments, one in the river and one on dry land? And furthermore, does it relate in some way to the fact that Yehoshua is the one who comes up with the monument inside the river? Hashem commands, on a pshat level at least, we only hear Hashem commanding Yehoshua to establish one monument, that's the monument on dry land, and it seems that Yehoshua is the one who comes up with the monument inside of the river. So there's human initiative, there's divine initiative. What do each of these monuments signify, and how does that relate to who comes up with this plan? Something for you to consider. That's it for today. Chazak ve'matz, and happy learning.